Welcome to Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitzis, the founder of Daily Kos, and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Elleveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Kosas The Brief. It's just our weekly show about politics. I'm Marcos Molitsis. I'm here with co-host Carrie Elleveld. And today we have a co-co-host with Lauren Floyd. She's a staff writer at Daily Coast focused on justice issues. Last week during our show, literally as the show was filming, we had the Derek Chauvin verdict come down and we, we, we were already in the middle of a different show. We didn't expect a response, a verdict that quickly. Turned out that it was a good verdict, so nobody's complaining, but we promised that we would be able to talk about the aftermath of that trial and the trial itself in this the following week, which is today. So that's what we're going to be focused on. We have already Lauren Floyd, staff writer at Daily Coast, and joining us in a little bit will be Maurice Mitchell. He is the national director of the Working Families Party and also a key member of the Movement for Black Lives. So really excited to have this very important conversation. So welcome, Carrie, Lauren. Uh, thanks for being here, of course. And Lauren, you were covering the blow by blow of the Chauvin trial. And um, obviously, we know how it ended. But can you talk a little bit about how you felt going into that coverage when the trial was about to start? Sure. I was a little, I guess my feeling was nervousness, even starting the trial, because I wasn't exactly sure how it would go. Um, and I was pleasantly, well, not pleasantly surprised, but but I was um, I thought the prosecution did a really good job in communicating to the jury that, you know, what you saw is accurate. You know, you can believe your eyes and, and providing context to what we saw and providing, you know, 45 witnesses took the stand, the majority of them for the prosecution. And so they really did. The prosecution really did a good job of going step by step, expert by expert, um, getting different police opinions, getting the chief of police opinion and really forcing it um, down the jury's throats that, you know, this was outside of policy, which was something that I hadn't really seen. Like I, it's, it's rare to see cops come out and speak against other cops. And so when I saw that begin to unfold time and time again, witness after witness, that's when I began to get hopeful. Was there a moment in the trial where you realized this is it? Like the prosecution nailed it. There's no way. they. I mean, aside from the history of, <laughs> of this country, but if this is a just country, this is the moment where the prosecution sealed the deal. What was that moment, do you think? There was no one moment because it was it was the collective. It was again, it was the police chief. It was outside um, use of force experts. It was first responders, the firefighter who broke down on the stand crying when she started talking about the frustration of having to watch someone killed in front of you and not being able to do something specifically as a first responder who is trained and could have helped in that situation. So it it. It was not it was 
let me try to think a single moment. No, but it was the, it was just witness after witness and um, seeing it time and time again. But I was still nervous because you never, I, I didn't know how it was going to go. Like I was not confident at all <laughs> when we were waiting for the verdict to come in. I, I still didn't know how it was going to go. I was hopeful in that the jury's interpretation was my interpretation of what I just saw. Um, but I still couldn't be sure. One of the things that came across so clearly, and I, I didn't get to watch all of the trial, so I took in a lot of it through headlines after the fact, um, reading your stories, uh, you know, seeing some of the coverage on TV, but the community trauma, traumatization of that killing, of people watching it, witnessing it, and not being able to do anything about it just seemed to come across so clearly in a way that I wasn't aware of before the trial. I do wonder for you, and you know, you don't, th this, this may not be a fair question. So if, if you don't want to get into it, feel free to <laughs> do what most politicians do and just go somewhere else. But um, I do wonder what the personal toll of what for you was of, of covering this trial. I mean, there was, like I said, there was a lot of trauma, re-traumatization -trauma while the trial was happening. And I wonder um, if you could talk about your personal experience. Yeah. Watching some of those videos was difficult. I had to mute the sound from time to time um, because you're seeing, I mean, you're seeing someone die. You're seeing someone scare for their life over and over again from different angles, different, different um, clips of footage, different types of footage. And so, you know, that is, that is traumatizing. And, you know, if I need to mute the sound, I'll mute the sound, but trying not to as much as possible because, you know, you want to see what's happening and you want to be able to report on what's happening. And so, yes, it, it's, it's difficult and it should be difficult. I think that's an, that's an important, um, an important part that comes out of covering this trial and, and, and other cases like this is that you fighting the impulse to look away is important. And so, you know, for a person of color, maybe not as important because because this has been your whole life. You know, you've you've been seeing this your whole life. But for other people who were shocked, who were shocked by this happening, um, who didn't think or, you know, didn't really understand that this was a real problem, police brutality and racial profiling, they didn't really understand that this was a present day problem. You know, I would I would encourage those people to to not look away and to force yourself to get through that heart video, because we need to start feeling as a people and we need to start looking at other humans as humans, despite what they might have done or said or, you know, however someone else's interpretation of them is, you know, it's important to see with your eyes and to to feel with your heart. Cause that's how you, that's how I believe we're going to get to change. Yeah. Well, it was, it was hard for me. And, and I, I'll admit, I still haven't seen the full, the, the full length video. I just, I, I can't get through it. It just, and you know, amazed that, that you did <laughs> and multiple times, cause they had all the different angles and everything. And, and to me, one of the most, sort of searing moments of the trial. And I didn't watch it minute by minute like you did, but watching the coverage after it was when a coroner said, that's the moment he died. 
And Chauvin sat there on his knee for an extra, what, six, seven minutes or whatever it was after that moment. And they're going to claim it was <laughs> car exhaust or all the nonsense. But it was the other sort of piece that really stood out to me is, is that the defense was comically bad. And the prosecution was incredibly effective. And yet we all sat there and said, well, I hope he's convicted. <laughs> I mean, right. it should never have been in doubt. And yeah. so that, that, that doubt and the fact that nobody really trusted the system, I actually think is more of an indictment of what happened. And if you look at the aggregate of police brutality in this country or police killings, which is a subset of police brutality, obviously, police killings, and you see that 99% of them aren't even, and beyond, aren't even prosecuted. And not, not all of them are unjustified, but I would, you know, I would venture to say that a significant number of those are unjustified just because we have a history of that. Every time we see video, you know, it seems that most of the time we realize it wasn't, it wasn't justified, that this is an anomaly. And it, this almost proves just how messed up the system is because you needed a case this clear cut, this obvious. And even then we had doubts that justice would be served in that, you know, in that, in that Chauvin would be punished for that murder. And, and so, I mean, coming out of it, did you actually, I didn't feel relief, but it's also, you know, my, my community's trauma is different, right? I'm, I'm an immigrant, I'm Salvadoran. So I feel the children in cages on the border, right? That's my visceral, like, pain when I look at the news. Like, for you, how did you feel after that verdict? I, I was emotional. It, it felt like it, it was a weird feeling of, thank goodness. And like, this had to be guilty, right? This is one of those verdicts where it had to be guilty because if it was not guilty, like, how do we live in, in this society? You, you get it. Like, how do we function as a society that says it's okay to kneel on someone's neck for more than nine minutes? It just, it, it, this was one that had to be guilty. And then, like I said, when I was watching, I was, I was anxious and I was nervous and um, so it was it was like a yes moment and a, and a we can breathe moment. You know, it was like a whew, OK, you know, like a like a um, just a, a, a sense of relief. And then you are very quickly snapped right back out of it because then we learned of Dante Wright's death. Mm -hmm. And then, my, you know, the, the next day happens and I'm back. Right. I'm right back on the beat. Right. I'm right back right. on covering police brutality. And it's a new story every day. You know, it is a new, it is literally a new story every day and sometimes multiple stories a day. Do you, do you think that black, black lives matter activists feel like this was a moment to sort of reboot, to restart, to, to potentially start to move in a slightly different direction? Cause we've just been on this trajectory where it just gets worse and worse. It just never ends. You know, I mean, you know, at least there was some accountability here. And and I know, I mean, uh, like President Biden got in front of the camera and said, this could be a moment for change. I can't remember exactly how he said it, but he looked directly into the camera and it was the last thing he said directly into the camera during address an address right after the, the verdict came down. I, I wonder if if the, if that's felt by Black Lives Matter activists or not really. I don't know, but I will say 
I don't put the onus on the activists um, at this point. At this point, the activists have done everything that they can do, like leading a movement and and taking to the streets and marching and pressuring legislators. Like it's in the hands of legislators. It's in the hands of police departments. It's in the hands of the president and the Biden administration to hold people accountable and to say this is not okay and to investigate. And I've I've seen him do that so far. I've seen him um, step up and deliver in a way that I wasn't expecting. Can you talk more about that? Can you talk about specifics of of Biden um, stepping up uh, some of what you've seen? Yes. And and part of it is me giving Biden credit for Merrick Garland um, (laughs) decisions to investigate. Um, But the decision to investigate the, the the Minnesota um, Police Department, uh, not Minnesota, Minneapolis Police Department. And and also, um, let me think, what are some more examples of, of um, how Biden just, There was just up, this, uh, there was just another shooting incident in North Carolina, a shooting, uh, I shouldn't say, I'm, I, I am kicking myself for calling it an incident. There was another shooting yeah, in North Carolina and they are, uh, the Justice Department is already investigating mm-hmm. that shit on it. Right. Right. So that that is an example of of what you're talking about, Um, you know, sort of swift action rather than let's sit back and give the benefit of the doubt and see, you know, if this turns out different from every other case. (laughs) Somehow this is different from every other case. It never is. It never is. But um, anyway, that's one more example. Just going down the line. It's also about who he's putting in positions to act. Um, and what and what he and the, the people he's appointing, the people he's nominating. And let me think. Also, his it's it's he has a lot of elements built into his um, coronavirus relief package. He has a lot of different elements built into his jobs act um, that would just be so beneficial to the black community overall, out, moving outside of the conversation of just criminal justice and policing reform, which are very essential conversations. But a lot of what President Biden is doing is, is pushing us past those conversations and, and getting us toward, you know, upward mobility of black and brown communities and and specifically allocating dollars to that and specifically making it a part of his jobs plan that he is going to prioritize areas that have been overlooked and areas that have been targeted, racially targeted by some of these transportation projects and cut off from desirable areas of the cities. And so that's one of the things that that I found very hopeful, that I've been able to be hopeful about um, in some of the things that that the Biden administration has already gotten on top of. Maurice Mitchell is uh, has joined us so we can bring him on right now and actually have him join this conversation. So Maurice Mitchell is the national director of the Working Families Party. He's also a longtime member now in a long time, but kind of a founding member of the movement for black lives. He's been in this fight since Ferguson and Maurice, thank you so much for joining us. Maurice, uh, tell us before we start talking about these sort of weighty issues, let's, let's give our listeners and viewers sort of an idea of who you are. And can you tell us your superhero origin story? (laughs) Because, you know, I've, I've known you for about four or five years and I'm always so incredibly impressed by everything you do. So how about we share a little bit of that with our listeners? 
Sure. Well, I'm an organizer. I've been organizing for most of my life. And, you know, I started youth organizing in New York and um, in the late 90s, when I went to school, I went to Howard University where uh, one of our classmates was killed by the police. uh, And that politicized a lot of us. And I threw myself into organizing around uh, police violence, around the criminal legal system. And I eventually took that into a lifetime of organizing, mainly in New York. When Michael Brown was murdered in St. Louis, there's a long story, but the short story is I reached out to the Organization for Black Struggle and embedded with them. I ended up leaving my job, my family, my friends in New York. And, um, you know, maybe two weeks or a week and a half after Michael Brown was killed, embedded with the Organization for Black Struggle in St. Louis in order to support the folks on the ground. And I was just so inspired by what I saw. Uh, What I tell folks is that, uh, you know, Ferguson, the people of Ferguson changed the world. And the young people, young working class, Black folks, sometimes leaving their service industry jobs, hit the protest lines and totally transformed how we look at policing, race, anti-Black racism. And I was one of the people who was inspired by the people of Ferguson. And I, it, I changed my life. I transformed my life to go there and be in service to them. And eventually through that work, that work became the, the DNA, uh, the work that I and many, many other people, folks on the ground in St. Louis, as well as folks around the country, that work became the DNA of the Movement for Black Lives. And then I went on to uh, help catalyze the Movement for Black Lives to become an international movement. And when Donald Trump rode this white Christian identity wave all the way up to the White House, um, I felt uh, duty bound to figure out how I could help organize to stop him. And that brought me to the Working Families Party, where now I try to create a multiracial working class alignment of forces to, to form an electoral united front and to build a solidarity that is a multiracial solidarity to challenge the solidarity of whiteness, right? A lot of times people think of white supremacy and white nationalism as a hate movement, and that's half white, that's half white, white, right, <laughs> right? It's definitely catalyzed by, by hate, but that hate is a, is a source of solidarity, the solidarity of whiteness, which I would argue has been a leading driving force in American politics from the very beginning. And if we want to challenge that and create a more democratic society, one where black people in our communities feel safe and one where in any democratic society, the police and the military are under the democratic control of the people. If that we want to make that true in black communities, then we need to we need to build a multiracial solidarity that is stronger than the solidarity of whiteness. And so that's the work that I've been doing since uh, August of 2018 with the Working Families Party, uh, building a broad national movement that's very bottom up, that gets everyday people elected, like folks like Jamal Bowman, uh, who you know uh, won a contested election against a, a, an incumbent and did so during the height of the movement and proudly said that he agreed with the ideas uh, that we we should be defunding the police and investing in our communities. And it's the work that I do till today. That's actually a perfect jumping off point because let's just get into, I mean, I'm a huge believer. You're talking about the power of activism, the power of grassroots activism. I'm a huge believer in it, but there's also this tension, right? With, uh, with party politics and at the working families party, you guys are sort of right in the, the middle of that tension. Right. And, um, and, following the 2020 elections where there were a bunch of Democrats in these sort of swingy districts who 
nearly lost their seats, they complained pretty bitterly about the slogan, defund the police. And my response to that is, you know, politicians don't get to set what activists do or say, but they don't get to set the agenda. But I wonder, um, from your perspective, where you sit, how you feel about that tension, how you're working with, you know, between to, to sort of translate between what's happening between the activists and the and the party or not. I mean, what, whatever your your take is. Well, that's a great question. And I would answer it in a number of ways. Number one, in a movement ecosystem, we need to appreciate people's different lanes. Right. So what might be appropriate for a direct action organizer and activist may or may not be appropriate for a candidate that's attempting to get 50 percent plus one of the vote. Right. So I wouldn't argue for any candidate to knock on the door of a uh, resident or a citizen and knock on the door. And the first thing they say is hashtag defund the police. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I I would not say that that would be the the best strategy to, to build a relationship with whoever's behind that door. Now, that in no way means that the movement for black lives, by all measures, has not done its job. The largest social movement in U.S. history, more than 26 million people hit the streets. And if it wasn't for the sharp focus of the defund movement, a lot of these conversations that we're having right now about the appropriateness of the language or we wouldn't be having those conversations. So social movements, when they're the most successful, they make visible the invisible and they make possible the impossible, right? And so what what does that mean? Social movements often surface contradictions and problems in our society that we've grown grown accustomed to or we've grown blind to. And they often do it in ways that are piercing and intense and often uncomfortable to people. Many times social movements are statistically quote unquote unpopular. Like people right now, like you you could go to McDonald's during MLK Day and you'll see his picture on on the wall. When he died, he was unpopular. Right. So the the interventions of social movements must not necessarily be popular in the ways that other ideas have to be popular. Also, new ideas, by definition, are not popular and they have to grow in popularity. Right. right? So I would say that, like the movement for black lives is doing its job by creating that tension. Now, politicians have a different ministry, if you will. Right. And every Democrat who is running for office from the most progressive to the most sort of centrist Democrat understands that they will have the same reliable far right talking points lobbed at them. It is their role and their duty to figure out in the context of their district and every district is different, how they communicate who they are in this environment where the far right is always going to say that every single Democrat is a basically a Trojan horse for the, the Marxist socialist sort of agenda, or that every single Democrat is against quote unquote law and order. We we know that these attacks will happen and that they're reliable. The particular proof points or the particular news stories that they'll use in order to give their talking points credibility will change. So today is defund the police. Tomorrow it'll be something else. What elected Democrats need to do in every single one of their districts is figure out what their electoral strategy needs to be on the ground. And I think it's actually disappointing that Democrats, instead of having a sober sort of postmortem where they looked at each district, each loss, each win, and and examined where where they were strong, what made them strong, and, and where they were weak, what made them weak, 
sort of used the movement as a, a, essentially a, a catch-all for all of their problems. I thought that was disappointing and it doesn't bode well for a Democrat strategy in future elections. And 2022 is right around the corner. And as you know, midterm elections are vexing for the party in power. I would, I would, I would tell Democrats, instead of like blaming the movement for black lives for being extraordinarily successful by all measures of what a social movement should be, that Democrats should, should learn. And um, I would say, take it, take it district by district. What you would learn is that in each district, there's a unique set of circumstances, the, the candidate, their appeal, the amount of money they raise, the strategies, the tactics that they use that could help explain what allowed them to win or lose. The last thing I'll say is that oftentimes when it relates to electoral wins and loses, we fall into the, survivors, the survivorship fallacy where we look at a win and then we imagine looking backwards that every single person, every single thing that that person did that led to that win had to be a mark of their genius. And we look at a loss and imagine that every single thing that that person did that led to that loss was somehow a mark of, a mark of their foolishness or, or, or their idiocy, right? When we know, and we know this in our per personal lives, sometimes you, you stumble into a, a win or sometimes you do every single thing right and ultimately lose, right? So we need to have a little bit more nuance and sophistication if we want to get better. So if Democrats are really interested in getting better and sharper, they should have that conversation. And I will concede that in some audiences, defund the police is a triggering, triggering sort of phrase. I will concede that. That still doesn't explain Democrat losses and wins. And I hope that they take that seriously. Yeah, I agree. I you know, I'm always I'm always struck by by how practical you are, Maurice, um, given that a lot of our colleagues in, in not just, in, you know, Black Lives Movement, but just in general, progressive progressivism can fail to see that big picture. And so I've always been hyper practical and I know you are as well. And it's a mark of doing what's possible and, and getting somebody like like Jamal Bowman elected was a mark of what's possible. Right. And, and our producer Walter put up a quote from one of the debates and the quote is, yes, I support the defunding of the police. If we reinvest in jobs that there won't be a need for as large a police force as we have, and there won't be a need for the militarization of the police, the whole country is rising up because we're tired of waiting. And that is imminently sensible, right? And of course, the right wing is going to take that and say they want to get rid of the police. They want to eliminate the police. Yeah, you know, I just I just read a story about the new uh, the Newark police, New York, New Jersey, where not a single shot was fired in 2020. Wow. And it can, I mean, it can be done. And a lot of that was reinvesting community groups that are working on preventing that violence, lowering tension in gang related areas, that sort of thing. And, and, and it works if you put the money in and the effort and you don't walk around with guns pulled. So yet you look at the, the you know, we talked before you came on, uh, Maurice, we talked with Lauren about the, the Chauvin trial and. During the trial, there was police shootings. And after the trial, there were police shootings. And they're wearing body cams and they're being taped by people. And they still don't seem to care or realize that maybe sentiment is turning. And in fact, they almost seem aggrieved, like they are under siege. And it's so unfair that they're under siege. So if the, you know, the one instance, you know, rare instance of actual uh, a policeman being held accountable in large part because his police chief said, you know, no, nah, that's not cool. And that's, you know how rare that is. 
That's right. What's that next step? What What's the next step to impose that accountability and that change in police forces around the country? That's a great question. And I would say that, you know, generally, accountability feels like oppression to the to the privileged. Right. And so oh, they hate it. Yeah. Yeah. The, the fact that uh, they're going from complete impunity to some modicum of accountability feels like the worst violence you could possibly imagine. Right. And that just shows how far we need to go um, in shifting our culture and how, how hard it's going to be. So what I will say about the outcome of the Chauvin trial is, number one, think about what it took. It took the largest social movement in our history. It took uninterrupted video, uninterrupted and graphic video. It took dozens of eyewitnesses. It took a number of police breaking that that thin blue line. It took all of those things in concert to lead to to this one conviction, right? Obvious, and an obvious one. (laughs) Yeah, one of the most obvious, and it took all of that. So that that lets you know what we're up against. In terms of going, going further, there's a number of things that we need to do. So some, some folks in the audience may know this. Um, I'm sure you all know this because you're close observers of, of politics, but policing actually happens on the local level. So the, when you talk about the police, you're talking about tens of thousands of jurisdictions. And we need to, to do two things. You know, right now in, in the federal government, they're talking about moving the uh, George Floyd uh, Justice and Policing Act, um, the movement for Black Lives, and um, introduced through Ayanna Presley and Rashida Tlaib, um, the the Breathe Act, which talks about, like you said, talks about those investments in the programs that are outside of the police, but have been proven consistently to actually improve safety and decrease harm and decrease violence in our communities. So, making those those federal investments so they they trickle down to the ground and. As it relates to the to the on the local level, holding local elected officials, mayors, DAs, city councils accountable to this idea. And you know, I could give an example. The one example I'll give is marriage equality. There was a point relatively recently, within, you know, not too not too long, within our, our lived lived experience, where when when we thought about marriage equality, we were like, yes, this is a justice issue. And you know, I can't imagine this culture embracing this. This might take a decade. This might take two decades. This might take a generation of culture change. We live in a, you know, uh, a a culture that is woven into it, this sort of Christian identity and this Puritanism. And then it went from not possible to inevitable, right? And I think if we think about the work that we need to do on the local level in that way, we need to have big fights around reducing the size, scale, and scope of the police and investing in our communities. And we need to make sure that happens in enough localities where it goes from this sort of topic of conversation to the maybe one day to it's inevitable. It's only a matter of time. And I think the work that's happening on the federal level, we need to you know, hold the Biden administration and um, everybody in Congress possible um, uh, accountable to making that happen. And then on the local level, um, in city, city by city, locality by locality, we need to hold local politicians accountable. That's one of the things that we've been doing at the Working Families Party in partnership with the Movement for Black Lives. We have the WFP uh, Justice Fund. And what we've said is that with that fund, we will release those resources to local elected officials that choose not to take law enforcement resources 
and choose to commit to investing in communities and, and narrowing the, the size, scope and scale of police. Because what we what we recognize is that on the local level, and this is true on the national level, is that police unions play a critical yeah, role right. in slowing down and stopping any motion, any motion. So even as our culture is shifting, police unions are using their, their resources, are using carrots and sticks and using fear tactics in order to hold uh, elected officials, both Democrats and Republicans, hostage. And, and we need to break that up. So that's the work that we think uh, needs to needs to happen in order to secure and lock in some of these cultural gains in real policy. So let just, me let me bring. Sorry, I know, Carrie, this is I know uh, marriage equality came up. I know you're like, that's your that's your baby. Right. But I actually want to bring in Lauren in really quickly um, because she's been covering the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And I just like to give us her an opportunity to tell us what exactly that is and how what it would do, basically. Sure. So what the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act would do is really create a national standard for how police departments should be operating. And it would also it's a it's a it's a huge legislative push. And so it would do that. It would do a number of other things. It would also ban chokeholds and it would ban no knock warrants, which, you know, hugely criticized in the death of Breonna Taylor. And so that's what I think is a critical, a critical piece missing from the puzzle is how should police departments be acting and how do we get them to change and what does that look like on a federal level because like you just brought up you know this is police departments are local you know each police department is in a in each city functions differently and it's kind of subject to the culture of that police department and so i think that it is it is crucial to have federal legislation that gets at okay you know, you can you can do what you want to an extent, but th- these are the rules that you must play by. And and there's a certain setting, a certain minimal um, precedence of, of how you behave, I think, is is absolutely needed. Yeah, I would go, I would go further as it relates to the federal government. Right. So it's true. Policing is on the local level, but the federal government is one of the one of the major funders of local police through various federal grants. So the federal government has carrots and those carrots can be tra- uh, translated into accountability. The DOJ, so, you know, Barack Obama's DOJ started to use certain tools like dissent decrees in order to hold local police departments accountable. It, as we know, during the Trump years, he completely reversed that. He didn't just reverse it. Um, he actually gave license, like famously, for police to commit human rights abuses against American citizens and to brutalize American citizens, you know, like uh, brutalize American citizens as they got arrested. And as we know, simply getting arrested doesn't say anything about whether or not you're guilty or not guilty of any crime. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, just the, the horror of the fact that we had a president that was doing that. So what we've seen is that with Merrick Garland recently with how he responded uh, to the Minneapolis Police Department, the fact that they're going to investigate the police department signals that the Biden administration is reversing that, going back to Obama era. What I would caution, though, is that simply going back to Obama era is is filling the gap that was left behind by Trump, right? And the Biden administration has to do two jobs, has to fill all those gaps, right? And then has to go even further, right? And I think um, a full government approach to that is essential. So the legislation, like you like you talked about, and I would put a, cl- uh, a plug in for the Breathe Act, which does the investment 
right? The investment into violence interruption and other community-based solutions, the DOJ playing its role, holding police departments accountable, uh, the president using the bully pulpit, consistently articulating, yes, believe your eyes and ears, structural racism does exist and, and we have to focus on it like a laser. All of those things I think are gonna be necessary as well as what can only happen on the local level. Can I, can I just jump in? I want to piggyback off of something you said, because it's really interesting, this comparison between the Black Lives Matter movement and, and, and what you talk, talked about with marriage equality. And of course, there's a larger LGBTQ equality movement. But, um, but one of the things you were talking about earlier is you're trying to build a multiracial racial justice movement, right? And how important that is, right? That it's not just black folks, but it's white folks, it's black folks, it's brown folks, et cetera. And I think one of the one of the reasons for the relative success of the marriage equality movement that is underappreciated by a lot of people was just that LGBTQ people exist in every corner, every facet of American life. So it doesn't matter whether you're Christian or Muslim or it doesn't matter whether you're white, brown, black, you know, et cetera. Like it doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't even matter party lines. There's Republicans who are gay. So one of the things that made that start to become inevitable was this cross section of people who wanted it, even though it was a relatively small group of people when you think about the massive Black Lives Matter movement, right? It was the cross section that, that mattered. Let me just um, ask you too, you know, you've br brought up uh, New York Congressman Jamal Bowman several times. We're getting ready to have a address, a congressional address from um, President Biden and Congressman Bowman is going to deliver a response to that address, right? Normally we get a Republican response to that address, which will happen. God only knows what that's going to be like. But what what do you expect to hear from Congressman Bowman? Because you guys help facilitate that response. What do you expect to hear that 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 we won't hear from President Biden? Well, the way that I like to look at this is uh, in two ways. Number one, one of the things that we said after four years of Trump and all of this like activity coming from the ground up, we understood that we wanted to learn the lesson from 2009. Famously, Barack Obama built an electoral movement in 2008, and then that electoral movement demobilized, right? And then by the August recess, you had a far-right movement in the Tea Party that has shifted and shaped the politics to this, to this day. Right. So we wanted to make sure that people understood that electing Joe Biden was the door, not the destination. The destination still required people to stay engaged, that part of the governing sort of a coalition included the people, not just elected officials. And we needed people in the grassroots to stay active, to ensure that the stated goals of the Biden administration, the Biden administration has stated that that they want to build back better, that they want to focus on racial justice, on, on climate change, on ensuring that every American that wants a job can have a job through full employment, right? Th these are the things that they stated. Those are transformative goals. That is in some way Biden stepping into an FDR type sort of legacy, right? And if that's what he wants to do, then he's going to need the grassroots to be highlighting it and, and moving the North Star as far as possible. And I think what Jamal Bowman is going to talk about is going to be additive and complementary uh, and uh, speak positively to all the things that we've done and also inspire the grassroots to stay engaged because Joe Biden will not succeed 
in any of the things that he stated if the grassroots are demobilized. And I think that Jamal is going to be focusing on that. The second thing is one thing that I think is really amazing about Jamal's victory and what Jamal represents is that he represents a very diverse district. Half of his piece, a big piece of his district is in Westchester. A big piece of his district is in the Bronx. He grew up in the Bronx. Bronx. He was an educator in the Bronx until he he left to to go to to D.C. And his district represents that multiracial working class alignment. It represents people in the suburbs. It represents people in urban areas. And Jamal is, to me, speaking directly to the heart of what people are experiencing on the ground, that urgency, that intensity. And I think he hit that intensity will will, I think, complement uh, whatever we hear from the White House and, and, and President Biden. And I think that this, it speaks to this complementary sort of co-governance that we're going to need in order to break through a lot of the challenges and really make sure that this Congress gets voting rights passed. And we know that the filibuster is going to be a, a huge barrier. We have this razor thin majority in, in the Senate, and it's going to require all of us to break through some of that. And we can't just be spectators as uh, as folks in the audience. We need to be agents of the change. And I think that that um, is one of the reasons some people have asked us, like, we've done this response during the Trump years. Why are we doing a response during the Biden years when we endorse Joe Biden? And the reason is we are taking our place uh, our rightful place as folks outside in the grassroots in order to create the conditions for the Biden administration to be transformative. And it's this famous Rooseveltian sort of, um, it might even be a, a apocryphal sort of story about how labor activists laid, laid down an agenda. And he said, I agree with you. Now make me do it. Well, that make me do it part is our job. And so I think uh, Jamal is going to be speaking a lot about that. So, uh, Maurice, I know we're almost out of time with you. So let me ask you uh, I think one more question. So I'm, I'm haunted by 2009, right? Because we all saw it coming. It was, it was so obvious it was happening. The Obama team didn't seem to care uh, or didn't see it coming. I'm not sure what happened. But because of 2010, Donald Trump happened. The voter suppression in places like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, Florida and so on, they happened because... That 2010 Republican wave elected these super majorities in those state legislatures, and we still have not recovered to this day. We're facing trouble and redistricting because of those 2010 Republican victories. So these, our inability to turn out our people really hurt us in concert with the rise of the Tea Party. Now, I know Kerry's been writing about this quite a bit that Joe Biden, maybe because he's white and old, doesn't see in male, doesn't seem to be generating a movement the way the Tea Party rose against Obama, the way the Women's March rose against Donald Trump. So you're seeing this sort of like quiet complacency on the right base or concern about Dr. Seuss and Mr. Potato Head. And that's fine with me. <laughs> I keep worrying about dumb shit like that. The question is, though, are our people going to turn out? And is somebody, Maurice, who really is sort of your job literally is to mobilize grassroots activists. How are you sensing right now the intensity of pro the progressive base to engage electorally next year? Because like you said, the Senate and the House are both going to be on the ballot. Sure. Great question. We can take nothing for granted, right? We could every single inch of space. We need to earn it. And, um, and, and we can't take any inch of space for granted. And so what do I, what do I mean by that? So right now, um, President, Biden, uh, President Biden's polling numbers are, are pretty high. And the far right is kind of stabbing around in the dark and 
you know, stabbing into these culture war fights that aren't necessarily getting enough traction outside of their media environment, right? Mm-hmm. None of us should rely on any of those things, right? Um, I think we've all witnessed how quickly our culture could shift, the narrative could shift. Eventually, as they stab around in the dark, they might actually hit something, right, and hit a current. You know, the Tea Party was di- didn't emerge initially. They had to kind of get their bearings. And trust me, the far right is looking for that cross-cutting set of issues that will animate their base in a way that they need to. And so I wouldn't put it past them to, to finally figure that out. Now, on our side, what we need to do is to ensure that Democrats govern like they won, right? They need to govern like they won. And the results of their governance needs to be direct and, and meaningful material relief to American people, to the American people, right? If we do that, for example, the $1.9 trillion COVID, COVID relief, all of that money went to state and local governments and directly into the pockets of American people. If the Biden administration could consistently do those things as it relates to the jobs plan and to the family plan and build a record where people don't need to, um, you don't need to break out a graph and you don't need to prove to anybody, they actually feel it in their lived experience how life under Trump was one way and life under under Biden and with progressives is a very significant and different way, then you have everything you need in order to save off what historically can be a bad, a bad cycle for the party in power. Now, if Democrats don't take that seriously and if Democrats don't ensure that the rules are fair by, by passing as one, I mean, then it's lights out for the Democrats. And I actually think that Republicans understand that this next election could participate in electoral realignment that will be hard to break over the next decade, but in either direction. So if Democrats fail to ensure that the rules are fair and um, you know preempt a lot of these crazy far-right anti-democratic laws, you know, somebody, uh, uh, a, a mentor of mine said that the Republicans have become the party of the dictatorship, and I couldn't agree with that more. Right. If Democrats don't do that and then on one hand and then on the other hand, provide significant relief to the American people, then they will lose power. They will lose the Senate and and possibly lose the House. And then, you know, essentially uh, it, it leaves the president being feckless and unable to be able to advance the agenda and creates the conditions where if the Republicans are maniacal enough and they are, they will stymie any positive developments for the next two years so they can create the political environment for a President Cotton or some other person who essentially has the same values of Donald Trump, but is less, I don't know, um, less erratic, let's say, right? Um, I was going to use a a lot of other words, but I chose erratic. We'll fill in the word. Potentially more dangerous. Yeah, yeah, it's much more dangerous. And in that environment, you could imagine a political realignment because it'll be a a non-virtuous cycle where that president continues the job that Donald Trump started in remaking the judiciary, the the federal judiciary, so that when they pass these anti-democratic completely unconstitutional laws, they'll have a judiciary that'll rubber stamp it if we ever bring it to litigation. And their their rules changes will make it so that us through democratic means can never access 
governing power. And then we essentially will be living in a form of right wing dictatorship. It's really frightening, but actually possible. And it starts today with uh, the Democrats governing like they won and focusing those resources into the American people. And then also taking a page from the far right. When they're in power, they focus like a laser on maintaining power and advancing power. If Democrats could focus like a laser on making sure that that everyday people have power through through S1 and other legislation, then then there'll be a path to stave off the far right taking governing control. But there needs to be an urgency. And that's the one of the reasons why the grassroots are so essential, because there's something about um, there's something about being inside the beltway where every all the urgency gets muffled. And there's something about, you know, being inside a White House where it's self-referential. And if you're not interrupting these sort of circular conversations that happen there, um, you could kind of lose your way. And that's the job that, that people who are listening right now have to take seriously of, of elevating the, the stakes, the urgency, and the need for Democrats to push the boundaries of what's possible. So, Maurice, every election is the most important election in our lifetime, and it's probably going to be that way for a while. Thank you so much for joining us, Maurice. I love you. I love the work that you're doing. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you today. Absolutely. It's good to be here. Take care. Lauren, in that theme about delivering to people, it's a very important one. And I know it's one that Carrie has, and I both had written about. You're actually doing a series on Joe Biden's delivering on promises to the black community, which I think has extra salience because Joe Biden is president because of the black community. Uh, without the South Carolina black vote, he doesn't he doesn't win the nomination. And I've also said that it was probably the smartest move because Carrie and I have talked about it. We were warning people like, I don't know if anybody else beats Donald Trump, right? I think the black community made a bet that they knew America better than people like me and, and they were right and I was wrong. So um, I, I definitely want to keep reiterating that because it's scary how close it was given who Donald Trump was and who Joe Biden is. But the reality, the, the bottom line is he's not president without the black community, both in winning the nomination and obviously in winning the White House and then in picking up the Senate. Right. The black community was integral in all of those. Uh, so you've been writing about him, him um, delivering on those promises. What grade would you give Joe Biden today? Understanding that we're still at 100 days. Right. There's there's a lot of presidency exactly. left. Exactly. Right now, I give him a solid B, which is a great grade for me. Um, I bet you didn't expect that because I don't think anybody, any of us expect that. I expected a really moderate presidency without much, much change. I I mean, he is hitting the ground running. And and um, Maurice talked about executive order after executive order. I mean, the first hundred days has to be a lot about undoing what Trump did. Right. So so you see like I'm I'm reading the executive orders every week and you see just executive order after executive order just getting at that. Um, so once we can get past that undoing what Trump did, I'm really hopeful about what we can accomplish um, with this with this administration in the way that I, I didn't anticipate. I mean, you can't help but be ho- hopeful coming from Trump. It was like a real bottom. Uh, I mean, you, you think that <laughs> but, 
I mean, it was a low bar to exceed, but I mean, it, it, yeah. he didn't exceed the low bar. Like he went to that high jump and he like vaulted over it. And all of us are kind of sitting there going, wait, what? Wait, what? He easily, <laughs> right. President, President Biden easily could have presided over a reversion to democratic norms. Right. And I mean, big D democratic norms, not small D. And instead he's move forward, right? He he's not it's not just a reversion to the norm. He's doing something much bigger than that. And I, I you know, I agree with you. I've been pretty impressed so far and, and hope he continues. Yeah. Yeah. So one name that, that you mentioned him and Maurice also mentioned him. And again, it's one of these surprising ones is Merrick Garland. Right. Because of all his nominees, he's the one where I think a lot of progressives were like, wait, what? Right. Like, really? That, <laughs> such an important position. And you're going to pick a guy who doesn't particularly have a strong record on, on even right. civil rights issues, you know, much less some other things. He was he was like he was a boring middle of the road person that Barack Obama nominated for the Supreme Court thinking he could win Republican support. Mm-hmm. That's why right. he was nominated, not because he was right. a big champion of liberal politics, because he could get him through. He was he was thinking. <laughs> but again, yeah. <laughs> Maurice. Yeah, exactly. That's good. Uh, Maurice. And then now you like you've mentioned him several times. So are you do you are you pleased so far with what you're seeing from Merrick Garland? I'm pleased so far. I want to see it continue. We I'm really interested to see what happens in the aftermath of Derek Chauvin's conviction. Right. When maybe a year or two from now, you don't see protests happening in the streets every day. You know, when it's not right in your face in 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 the news cycle every single day and maybe it will be um that's on us as a people whether we keep it in their faces um but i i'm interested to see how he if he continues along this path and and really starts investigating some of these police departments because they're awful and they've been awful for decades Um, (laughs) and so a number of them it's a culture. And that's one of the things I, I wish I had thought to, to talk about when Maurice was here is how do you change the culture of policing? Right. Because the conversation that we are having is about creating standards, hold it, holding them accountable. But but how do you change this culture and this this mindset and the arrogance? Um, how do you get at that? You know, I I was just listening to a through line podcast about the history of policing in the United States, and it's a really good one. I can't remember the exact name, and I recommend it to to all. It's a good podcast in general. But they were just talking about how there have been these commission after commission looking at what happened in certain situations and how racial profiling unfolded and blah, 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 blah. And like that same report gets written Every, you know, every 20, 25, 30 years over the course of the last century and it it gets brought to light. And then we just go back and another 30 years later, it gets brought to light. And then we just go back about Mm -hmm. police brutality, et cetera. You know, all these blue ribbon commissions, blah, you know, hoity toity, blah, blah, blah. But nothing changes and how bringing awareness to the situation isn't enough to change the situation. So I I don't have an answer to your question, but I'm just thinking like, what a great question it is. Like, how do you change that culture? It's like you have to completely rip apart what has been a historical norm in in 
policing and racial profiling for, you know, for centuries. Yeah, there was an article where you, you had a police chief basically implying that on a traffic stop, if the police didn't approach with their hand under a gun and a light into the into the car, uh, it, it would mean dead cops. Even though, you know, traffic stop shootings of police are exceedingly rare. Uh, there's this, they, their ideas, they basically say it's you, if you reform, you're killing cops. And that's the big part of that culture shift is to get them away from this black and white and say, <laughs> like whatever Newark did in Newark, if you can do it in Newark, which has a heavy gang presence, if you can go an entire year. And by the way, they, there was a shot fired this year. So the, the record's broken, but they went the entire 2020 without a single gunshot being fired. If you can do it in Newark, you can do it pretty much anywhere, I think. So that's all we have for today. That's the end of our show. Thank you so much, Lauren, for joining us the entire time. It was a real pleasure to have you here. Thanks to Maureen Mitchell for joining us as well. Thanks to Walter Einenkel for producing the show. Thanks, Carrie, for co-hosting. And thank you for listening. If you're joining the show, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. See you next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. See you next week.